Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, February 19th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Okay, we got so much to talk about. Don't know where to go first. Uh... Maybe we should go to our our, our happy place, which is um, which is uh, that uh, the bells are finally tolling for um, Andrew Cuomo, uh, governor of New York, the saint of COVID. Um, and what's interesting is that uh, in the over the past couple of weeks since the uh, release of the report by the Democratic Attorney General of the State of New York that uh, the Cuomo uh, administration had deliberately uh, miscounted or undercounted. The number of nursing home patients who had been sent back to nursing homes with COVID uh, uh, and, and what that might portend, um, uh, all kinds of things have been happening. And the Democratic legislature is now looking, Democratic legislators in the state of New York, otherwise terrified of Cuomo, or previously terrified of Cuomo, also part of the general consensus that Cuomo is wonderful in every possible way. Uh, seem to have decided that uh, they have, have been uh, involved in the creation of a monster and that they need to do what they can to protect themselves and the electorate from him, following the revelation that one of their number, Andy Kim, <clears throat> got a phone call from Cuomo demanding a certain fealty standard of, ac- of, of activity or else Cuomo, according to Kim, said, I will destroy you. I will destroy you. So basically they're like, "Uh uh-oh, we better rescind his emergency powers to control the state with the flick of his finger right now uh, because this guy is going off the rails. Um, And it couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Can I add one step in this process that you missed, I think? Um, Please. There there was Cuomo's uh, final, I mean, eventual long-awaited response to to the revelations. Uh, this was, I don't know, however many days ago, two or three days ago, where he, during a press conference, he said, you know, something along the lines of uh, mistakes were made uh, on his administration's part. And yes, he could have, they could have come, they could have gotten the numbers together sooner. They were, they were slow on getting to the, on getting the, the, the numbers uh, to the, to the federal government. Um, this was not the issue. This is the, the the issue is they buried the numbers. It's not like oh we we didn't we didn't have our act together and, and couldn't come up with them quick. You know I know you know time is of the essence and we should have been faster. That was not this. They hid them. They buried them. They froze. They deliberately buried them. There's also one be, other oh, one other sign that that things are turning against Cuomo is something that a lot of us were kind of deeply annoyed by for for months and months, which is that CNN had his brother doing softball interviews with him, um, constantly talking about COVID, playing him up, playing up this hero myth of uh, Cuomo's response to the pandemic, and they CNN sort of grandly announced recently that we can no longer have Chris Cuomo cover his brother anymore. Like now it's unethical, but before it was fine. Right. I think it's important to note. <clears throat> that there is a piece of connecting tissue here that could be rotted and that could spell Cuomo's doom, which is, so we know that these uh, COVID patients were sent back to nursing homes. We know that the n- number of deaths resulting from patients in nursing homes was undercounted by f- uh, 55%. 
because they were only counting people who died at the nursing home, not who were sent back to the hospital or sent. Well, to I suppose we have to at this point say alleged, because this could very well result in criminal charges. Well, let let me. But here's the thing: <clears throat> the press and everybody have been operating on this basis, which is that uh, there's no evidence. According, let me just go through this. I'm not saying there's no evidence. There's no evidence that the uh, repatriation of the COVID nursing home patients back to the nursing homes led to any deaths. How do we know this? From a report that came out in July from the Department of Health of the state of New York as conducted by McKinsey. Now, uh, I don't want to impugn or say anything about the honesty of McKinsey and company and it doing its reports. But when you contract with an outside contractor who is working for you and being paid by you uh, on a report that is supposed to gather data, um, you notice how it's uh, really amazing how when that happens, the report usually exculpates you. So uh, the report exculpates the decision. We have absolutely no idea. We have no reason to trust that that report is accurate, that what it, what it says is true. And it actually flies in the face of common sense that it would be true. It makes absolutely no sense that you take people, you move them back into a closed building uh, with potentially improper ventilation with somebody who is uh, shedding virus and that the virus doesn't then attach itself to the most vulnerable population, elderly people in nursing homes, and work its will. All we know is what we were told, and there is in this case a conspiracy of interest between the New York State Department of Health and the nursing homes. Because even though the nursing homes can say, look, we had no choice, we had to take them back, that was the state order, they were also getting paid to get these people back into their into their beds. And uh, they don't want to be accused of having been, you know, um, har- you know uh, locations of death. So they have no reason to say, no, no, the Cuomo is lying. Actually, we had a we had an outbreak here. Cuomo and Howard Zucker, his Department of Health, had, have every reason to say nothing happened, which, of course, as I say, is illogical and is one of the reasons that people like Janice Dean and many other people, Mark Thiessen and stuff like that, relatives who died in the nursing homes who were like, what the hell happened here? I don't know how they got it. And we're not getting straight answers. If the press is serious now about uh, following up on Tish James, the attorney general's report, and we don't know if it is yet. We don't know if the New York Times, which has all the resources in the world to do this, is yet. That's where they're going to go if they're serious about trying to break down what happened here. And uh, if they go there and are able to figure it out, and they figure out that one person died because of this policy, Cuomo is finished. Because he will have he his policy will have led to the death of somebody who otherwise would not have died, and then he lied about it, and he lied about it consciously, and he commissioned a report to continue the lie. And he hit it, and let's say it's worse than one person. What could we have learned 
from the horrible error, horrible but uh, but not done in bad faith error of what happened at the nursing homes by hiding the data. He has a, he effectively retarded the effort to figure out how it transmits, what the speed of transmission is, what happens in these spaces. What yeah, is about Florida, the- but that wasn't unknowable. We have evidence to the contrary in Florida. I mean, the 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 problem that you're establishing here, John, that the, the New York Times has to do this job right is that the New York Times is complicit. New York Times is a co-conspirator. They did not want to investigate this sort of stuff. It showed up in the news reports. It showed up in the AP. But it wasn't a a primary focus of the Northeastern establishment press because the primary objective was to tarnish Republican governors and, by extension, the Republican president. Right. But now there is no problem because Florida had to say to Medicare guidelines, no, we're not going to follow this sort of thing. I mean, this is this is best practice. Well, and there was very people out of these hospitals and back into nursing homes in order to um, for Medicare reimbursement schedules. Well, and DeS- so no. yeah. DeSantis didn't even allow visit. I mean, he actually shut down visitors to nursing homes in Florida very early on as well. And there was some back, you know, the public was not happy about that. They wanted, they, they thought that that was too extreme. It turned out to be quite a wise decision, both to protect the residents of the nursing homes and the people who work there. Right. But now Trump is gone. This is now an open subject. It is, there is a, the creation of a gen, genuine, uh, you know, political crisis for Cuomo. And it's the perfect scenario to muddy the waters. Here's the problem. You're getting to this. The problem. The problem is always in the White House. The problem is the fact now that we have a Democratic president. And that Democratic president promised the universe, promised to get his hands around the pandemic, promised to end it, quote, unquote. And he's not going to be able to do that. And the press is now starting to say, well, this is, you know, Politico. Well, this is starting to look like a problem that is relatively unsolvable. And Andy Slavitt, who's, who made his, his mark in social media and became now an advisor to this White House by, by heaping criticism all over Republican governors on television yesterday going, well, we, this, there's a lot we don't know about this virus. Why is it behaving as it is in California and Florida, where he said it would behave the exact opposite? This is depth of expertise. Right. right. I don't know. We don't know. And that's the right answer. But it was the right answer last year. But what all I'm saying is the classic thing about media bias and media bias against uh, Republicans and the suppression of stuff against Democrats is there is it is often the case that um, after after the after uh, uh, the political end has been achieved, the major political end has been achieved by the dominant media culture. They go back and they 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 uh, you know uh, they paint by numbers to 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 cover up the the deficiencies uh, as things were going on. So actually, the New York Times has a vested interest in doing the after a six month investigation with uh, we did we started a database and we had this and here's the. Here's the chart that we came up with. We find that there was a, and then Cuomo is dead. And then they can say, don't say that we're bad. You know, we actually, when it came, you know, we, we're, we were there on the front lines, you know, reporting without fear or favor. So it came a year late. Better safe than sorry. You know, like that, that's, that, that's how I would think it, it might go down. Um, and you could also not to get too you know conspiratorial here. I'm not. This is not really conspiratorial. But um, uh, if you want to deflect from Biden, you go to Cuomo. There's now a Biden. 
Cuomo's not a counter anything anymore. Cuomo's not the counter Trump anymore. He's just the governor of New York. And you know what? Crime's up. And, you know, the, the, the restaurant policy is inconstant. And, uh, you know, he's mean. He's being mean to poor Andy Kim. And, what a, you know, it's a... Uh, you know, it's not really good. You know, like that. Anyway, that that's that's uh, that 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 would be the scenario if if because only the press is going to do this. Like Tish James laid out the map, right? She laid out the map. She said the numbers were uh, were understated. People went back and they went back to the hospital and died in the hospital. Fifty five percent more than were initially reported. So who died? Uh, why? Uh, is something that she basically said either it needs more study or that's not that's beyond the bounds of what we were deciding to study, and either she'll go into it and try to connect the dots, or she won't. So this is really something for the media because who else is going to do it? I mean, a prosecutor. Um, the New, the New York it. State Assembly is is doing it right now. You have, but the, but, I'm reading, but, I just want to read yeah, one thing yeah. that just came across my timeline from yeah. Uline New, I believe is her name. She's a, um, she's a state assembly woman from the city, from the boroughs. I kid you not, she says. My text messages, my DMs, my inbox are flooded with Cuomo stories. So many people have been bullied, mistreated, or intimidated by him. Who could have known? <laughs> Who had any access to this information? Who could have pressed for a quote or on a background? We're off the but, record. But nobody so, could have known. So what does this tell you? It tells you that the worm has turned. Like it, this it tells is not... you also that there's a vested interest in the press in not doing this work. I know because but... they haven't done the work. Okay, but okay, we we can yell about the press coverage of Cuomo until the cows come home. We're now in February 2021, and the question is: uh, Is he going down? And the answer is, I think there's a 50%. I don't mean that he's going down because he'll, you know, be impeached or that he'll be, you know, arrested or something like that. I mean, I mean that his moment is over and that he will turn from a hero into a pariah in, 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 in short order. And I would say there's at least a 50% chance of that now, if, if not. If not I just I just can't wait to see what his next poster will show then like is is he going to be the one dangling from boyfriend cliff or whatever that was oh my god boyfriend <laughs> cliff the self promotion part of it i mean the reason i think probably a lot of these people are filling this assemblywoman's dms with with horror stories of cuomo is that like us a lot of people never really trusted the image that was built up uh, of him at the beginning, but I, I have to say I agree a little more with No on this. I don't think, I don't. I think they still feel there. The press in general still feels a vested interest because what's the alternative to Cuomo? There isn't really an alternative anymore. There's not like in terms of who would replace him. As- they don't have any affinity for Andrew Cuomo. Andrew Cuomo can go jump off the boyfriend cliff for all they care. They care about themselves and their reputation. They have a vested interest in this because right. they have invested their exactly. reputations in his success. And to go back on that would be to invalidate a year's worth of hagiographical portraiture. Yeah. We'll see. So, but so, we'll you know, see. Just one more thing. So much of the coverage of this that I see among um, media that is friendly historically to Cuomo um, has a way of isolating this. He did many great things, but this looks bad. Um, and I, so I think there needs something else sort of needs to um, add to the, to the spill here, you know? Right. But people need to understand <clears throat> that the closer you get to Cuomo, 
In other words, the reporters who cover Cuomo, reporters who have covered Cuomo, the press corps, and there, of course, is the press corps, you know, given the nature of local reporting and local press coverage and all of that, is, you know, a shell of what it used to be. I mean, you know, Albany used to be a major center of press activity uh, in the United States, and it is no longer. So the number of people, if there were, you know, 30 major reporters with uh, 30 major uh, TV stations had Albany reporters, every newspaper in the state had Albany reporters, um, and it was a, there was a real thing, and it, there is no longer uh, in that same way. But the closer you got to Cuomo, the more you, this image of Cuomo that has been promulgated over the last year is not one that anybody who covers him has any sense whatsoever of being true. I mean, they, they know that he's a goon. They know that he's a monster. They've been on the receiving end of these horrible phone calls. I mean, you have no idea what it's like to get a phone call from the guy. It's chilling and and unpleasant. And, and uh, you know, and so that's, he's intimidated his own party and he's intimidated other people and he intimidates reporters. And so it is, it was this desperate hunger to have the counter Trump that create, that made Cuomo the hero, not, not Cuomo himself really. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Like okay. Antifa, he's just an idea. The idea of Cuomo was really right. yeah, exactly. Um, so moving on from what from a Democratic politician to a Republican politician, of course, yesterday was the day of Ted Cruz's uh, infamy um, caught on a caught on Instagram uh, by a fellow passenger on a plane to Cancun. Uh, putting his bag up in the uh, baggage uh, in the luggage rack atop, um, and maybe maybe the most uh, amazing um, uh, self-inflicted political wound we've seen in I don't know how long. I mean, a very long time. Um, that uh, you know, and then he 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 was in Cancun. By the time he landed, like Justine Sacco. Uh, it was already a worldwide scandal that he was going to Cancun, and then he turned around and came back, and he was he was on the then then he was met at the airport by reporters. First, he said that he was only doing it to be a good dad because his kids wanted to go on a family trip. It turned out that was a lie. Since then, his wife's friends in her chat group leaked the chat to where where Heidi Cruz had said, "Let's all go to Cancun to get away from the cold." And then he said, obviously, I, you know, I wish I hadn't have done it. And uh, so uh, there we are. Does this matter? Okay, there's one silver. I, I think Ted Cruz deserves all the opprobrium that's being heaped on him because a, ha, a large portion of his job is optics, right? I mean, as a senator. And he did, to his credit, he'd already requested the emergency funding, that the kind of stuff that he as a senator is able to actually do to, to, to help people there. He did, but the optics are important and he knows better. But I actually was was happy to see the return of shame, right? Like this this, this moment where a politician was actually shamed into apologizing and saying, oopsie, bad on me. We've missed this during the Trump years, right? The shamelessness of the Trump years has kind of inured us to the fact that actually public pressure uh, can do this. The other thing I will say is that I think it's kind of reprehensible that the New York Times is getting secret, you know, 
looking at a politician's wife's friend's group's text to make a judgment about the politician. I didn't like that. If they were his text, that's one thing, but it doesn't seem fair to be, you know, using the leaked text from what I hope are now her ex-friends. Um, those of us who are on text message chains with our with our friends have said many things that we would never want to see appear in the New York Times. But in this particular case, she's not the public figure he is. So I didn't really like that, mm-hmm. but I did like to see the return of political shaming because we need a little bit more of that in our political culture right now (laughs) let me let me let me uh let me offer you this uh analogy there's a great moment in blazing saddles the mel brooks movie where mel brooks playing the governor of the state uh william lepetamine one of the great great character names of all time is sitting around a table with his advisors and he starts saying we've got to do something we've got gentlemen we've got to save our phony baloney jobs gentlemen harumph harumph i didn't get a harumph out of that guy so isn't this kind of a revelation that basically Ted Cruz thinks his job as a senator or as a leader is phony? He's a phony baloney senator. Doesn't do anything. Doesn't get legislation passed. He's a, you know, he's a, he's a guy who, you know, uh, most famous for, uh, for doing a filibuster about nothing and, uh, and, you know, shutting the government down for no reason. And then, you know, uh, ending, ending up uh, endorsing and sitting on the phone uh, trying to get money for the guy who said that his father killed JFK and his wife was ugly. So that's Ted Cruz uh, and, you know, and and an expostulator of... And uh, man, trying uh, to catch yeah. the bus of overturning election results. Right. The sole, ob- the sole objective there being to just fight, fight for its own sake. I mean, that's the logic right. of fight for its right. own sake. The right. idea is to win any of these things. Right. God forbid. Yeah. But the fact that he didn't do. know, the fact that he didn't know... I better not go to Cancun this week while people in my state are free are sitting in houses in 38 degree uh in you know in 38 degrees they can't get planes out it's not so easy to get a flight out who knows how we got the flight and uh you know and that like that would be bad that's because he isn't really a populist politician he has no feel for what you're supposed to do when your state is in crisis even if there's nothing for him to do, you don't do this. So he's basically revealing he is just a he is a a game player. He's not a leader. He's not he's not taking a leadership position. He's not like he's not in Texas driving around to survey the damage and then giving an interview to you know going on Hannity to talk about what's going on in Texas. Did he do that? No, Rick Perry did that. Uh, the governor, uh, Abbott, did that. He is going to Cancun. This is a very striking moment. I mean, it's not just a revelation that he's a bad politician and that any fantasy that anybody has that a guy who is this ham-handed can ever actually succeed in the <clears throat> circuitous game of becoming a presidential nominee. Uh I'm not saying that he can't win re-election in Texas. I mean, it's a long time till he's up, but uh, but um, it, but it is a revelation of this stuff that we were talking about yesterday, and that uh, the death of Rush Limbaugh has sort of led to some discussion of, which is, you know, what does it mean to be a Republican leader, and how much of this is feeding the outrage machine, you know, making yourself a national figure rather than a local figure, like that your job is. Ted Cruz does not think his job is to serve his constituents in Texas. He thinks his job is to make Ted Cruz 
the uh, you know an important political figure. He doesn't even think his job is nominally to appear as though he is serving his constituents in Texas. I mean, because this is like shooting fish in a barrel. Rudy Giuliani, who was this brilliant PR mayor, people now that he's the Rudy he is now, people that you know, if there was a fire in New York City, he was he was there. Like that's what he did for eight years. There was nothing he was the mayor. There was nothing he could do about the fire. But anything that happened, he was there. Ted Cruz was there in Texas. He could have been, you know, like going to the Walmart, helping to, you know, bring good, you know, helping to bring goods out of the warehouse to give to people online, whatever. If you were his PR person, you could structure a whole thing where he could have looked really good instead of like the worst you could possibly look in the middle of a weather crisis. But there's also there's also an aspect of this when when watching it unfold that made me think there it, it was also highlighting the kind of elite versus non-elite distinctions in our country, something that actually Trump tapped into very well in 2016 and that is still there simmering or actually ready to come to a boil at any moment. He's, you know, look, he's a Yale educated, you know, uh, elite guy. He's, he's, you can, he lives in a world where if your house loses heat, you can not only can you afford to move to a fancy hotel, you can afford to make that fancy hotel the four seasons in Cancun and take your whole family and some friends with you. That's a world that exists. It exists. I mean, it's all around Washington, D.C. It's not just politicians. It's the lobbyists. It's the lawyers. It's, it's a, there's a whole technocratic elite for whom that decision is completely sensible and absolutely what they would do. And they would defend it as we have the ability to leave this bad situation. He should have done it because he was a politician. But I think it's when people look at that, it's not just the political consequences. It's the haves and haves not part of it that they also see. I think. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, John, when when you bring up uh, this exposing Ted Cruz as a phony baloney populist, um, I think it also raises the question. Are they all phony baloney populists? Uh, I'm talking about the in the governing class of the of the current populist movement. Um, it, this is just um, an optics mistake um, that that exposed him as being a phony baloney populist. But the fact is, they all came to this as a sort of late career switch. Right. They weren't. They were, they, this wasn't. Yeah. They were Supreme Court clerk. Yes. And 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 Ph.D. You know, he was a Supreme Court clerk. So is Mike Lee. Josh Hawley wrote a wrote a, a book about uh, about Teddy Roosevelt at Stanford before he was 30 years old for Paul Kennedy. Uh, you know, uh, Josh Mandel, who was the guy who was like, I'm going to be a senator from Ohio because I got down. You know, I can't take these election cheaters and all of that. I think he's from, he went to Harvard. I'm not sure. Anyway. Yeah, yeah right. It's like, you know, uh, aging rock bands who, you know, got in on the, you know, tried to make a disco record before they, you know, got out of the game or something. You know? <laughs> but that's, that presupposes, though, that there is a consistent populism or a coherent populism, right? That there is a, a genuine, honest form of populism. I think, I think there is a sincere populism in the, among the citizens, I, I, right. I'm we, not a fan right. of it. Right. No, so but, that once you get in, once you try to pursue a governing program that is populist or at least deserves the label, you encounter the kind of contradictions that render it dishonest. There's no way to have a coherent populist platform because it is it it, it shifts with con- with conditions on the ground and whatever the people say, and you follow the people to wherever they lead you. That's 
That's just the nature of the game. So you can't be an authentic populist politician. Okay. So let's take Trump as a counterexample. So Trump's a billionaire, if he is. You know, he lives in gold, gold-plated faucets and all of that. Um, but there is no question that Trump is not of the class that Christine is talking about. Monetarily, he is of the class. Educationally. Ex- well, okay. He's not even Mon- Well, if you want to call, okay, whatever. I mean, he, he's a BA from, from Penn. Fine. So, mazel tov. Um, uh, you know, uh, he is, but the, I, but he is a, and a, you know, and a celebrity and all this, uh, but he is a, he was a, he was understood the minute that he started uh, playing these games back in 2010, 2011, that he was setting himself up as an antagonist, that he hated them and they hated him. And he thought that they were garbage and they thought that he was garbage and he may, However it is that he uh, lives high on the hog the way he would like to live high on the hog, he is not of them. Ted Cruz, the Supreme Court clerk, uh, married to a partner at Goldman Sachs, can pretend to be a populist all he likes, but it's crap. He's not. His family is supported by his wife, who is an investment banker, which is fine. I don't care. But it means that he has unconscious assumptions. It's almost as though he, I mean, if if there was any doubt in his head or whatever, that he might have said to himself, you know, I can't do this. And he might have said, well, Trump got to go to the golf course. Maybe I can go to Cancun. But he's not Trump. Okay. I joke about this, but there it's it's the difference between the people who use summer as a verb and summer as a noun, right? Like, where do you summer? Oh, that's that's, that's one class of people. And then there's, yeah. is it summer yet, right? Like, so if you, you, that's a good dividing line. And he's clearly on the summer as a right. verb group. Like, right, right. But look, a, uh, a Jew at, at Yom Kippur gets photographed eating in a restaurant. That's bad. A senator... From in a in a state that is uh, that is uh, living uh, under uh, uh, catastrophic conditions, uh, who ends up uh, in the you know in the warm sun of Mexico, rather than suffering along with his constituents, that's bad. It's the same thing. This is where the shame aspect comes in. It's not Ted Cruz can go wherever the hell he wants, and who cares? Uh, you know, uh, fine. Let him go. Let him go, and it's fine. Uh, by the other, of course, uh, bizarre thing he did was blame his children or say, I was doing it for the kids uh, when we now know. And this is where I know you're ma- mad that the text chat was released. And, yes, we're all in danger if our, if our, if our text chains or our chat groups are released. Um, but, uh, you know, what's important is that is, is, is the reason that they went is that his wife said, oh, my God, it's freezing. Let's all go to Cancun together. Right? Yeah, no, I'm not All he had her, to say I... was, you go to Cancun. I got to stay here. I'm the senator from the goddamn state of Texas. Right. If, yeah. Are you crazy? But he didn't say it. And he didn't say it because he didn't know it. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about. He didn't and his know initial it. instinct was to lie. Right. Now, the, the other... Right. lie. Yeah. Now, maybe the issue here is that politicians in the Southwest, and he is a, a politician from Texas, um, 
They don't know what Northern politicians know, which is that snow is politically very dangerous. Every mayor in the country knows that if they if he screws up a storm, he's got a year of crap he's going to have to deal with. What did he do? Where was he? Why weren't the snow plows in my neighborhood? Like uh, New York, Chicago, Washington, Boston, uh, anywhere there is snow, how you deal with the snow is one of the key elements of demonstrating that you deserve re-election. And I'm not kidding. People can recover from it. Michael Bloomberg recovered from a first disastrous snowfall. Uh, uh, Bill de Blasio. Chris Christie. In 2010, took a vacation during a snowstorm and got a ton of heat for it. Yeah. No, I mean, it's... And then he was reelected by the largest margin. Right. But he took a lot of heat. But, I mean, it's a self-inflicted wound. you're, You're better off... Not making the mistake because have a weather app on your phone, mayors and senators. Right? Well, yeah. and, and the infamous we were we were joking about the infamous uh, in D.C. Uh, Marion Barry, who was out partying in California when there was a big blizzard, and you know basically had consumed so many illegal substances in addition to the alcohol he was consuming that he was rushed to the E.R. and it was basically like ah no big deal. Meanwhile, his citizens were suffering. He was still popular, but he did get a, even even in D.C. and even from the Washington Post, he got some heat. Yeah, I'm just saying it's like it's like uh, so 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 Texas, you know, it's a once in a century storm. So Ted Cruz makes a mistake, but uh, when you don't make a mistake and when you handle something well and gracefully and cleverly, is when you transmit to people the idea that you are a formidable political presence with skills that go beyond what ordinary people have, and that they should invest their time and money and attention in you as a possible leader in the future. And that's what he has entirely surrendered. Now, again, like memories are short and no one's going to remember this in 10 months or something. But uh, but but what has been revealed cannot be unrevealed. Let's just put it that way. And the other well, thing... The, I, oh, yeah, go ahead. Briefly, just to a point that you've made that you haven't made on this particular podcast, but it made in private, is that the real... When it really becomes a, a detriment to your political career is when it reinforces pre-existing hatreds of you as a human being. Like, it didn't kill Chris Christie because it was 2010 and he had just been reelected and nobody had a hatred for him. If it had happened in 2013 or 2014, he might not have even finished his term. Ted Cruz doesn't have a big well of support from which he can draw. So the notion here that this might undo him isn't a function of his, this, you know, one bad choice. It's a function of the many, many, many bad choices that he's already made and how how he's conducted himself in a way that makes him already a a persona non grata for a lot of the Republican Senate conference. Right. Let me, let me just make one point that was made to me by a senior person in Washington uh, who has every reason to know, and I can't say who, but uh, believe me, has every reason to know. I mean, the general line on Cruz is that he, he has and will have an incredibly uphill road to climb to run for reelection for Senate in 2024. Remember, Beto O'Rourke came within three percentage points of beating him uh in 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 2018 uh and he isn't getting any more popular and texas is getting more purple and so you know he uh he may the the calculation that i heard is that he may be considering saying that he's not going to run for re-election so that he can run for he will be running for president but he will be running for president in part because he doesn't have a future as a senator, 
interestingly enough, that it'll be easy to knock him off. Not easy, but it'll be, you know, he's a knockoffable person in 2024 and that he'd be better off, you know, giving it another shot running for president. And again, if that's true, and I believe it to be true because he's full of Machiavellian Nixonian calculations, um, he triple time revealed himself as a as a as a bumbler and a and a you know and somebody who just simply uh has gotten as far as he's going to get and is getting no farther uh let's just uh talk now for a second about uh social media and big tech uh trying to curb our rights and freedoms deplatforming speech they don't agree with look you could just deactivate all your social media accounts but that's what they want in the first place. So instead of letting big tech sites try to control your speech, revoke their right to your data. Revoke it by choosing ExpressVPN to protect your online data. Keep yourself anonymous so that uh, your IP, uh, your internet service provider can't sell who you are and what you like to big tech companies who then also want to silence you. They track your searches, they track your video history, everything you click on. So when you use ExpressVPN, your online presence is anonymized. Your IP address is hidden and your activity is much more difficult to trace and sell to advertisers. And ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of your data, which protects you from eavesdroppers on your network. And believe me, The ExpressVPN app can't be easier to set up. You tap one button on your phone and computer and you're protected. So say no to censorship and take back your online privacy with the VPN I trust at expressvpn.com slash commentary. Visit my link and you'll get an extra three months of ExpressVPN service for free. Again, that's expressvpn.com slash commentary. Expressvpn.com slash commentary to protect your data today. Um. So let's just put it this way. Joe Joe Biden is uh, keeping to his campaign promises. So he is now formally invited or sent a letter. It's not a formal invitation or I don't know what you would call it, but sent a letter to the Iranian saying, come on, let's talk. I know you, we weren't talking before, but let's get back to talking again. Uh, Noah, this happened, uh, in the wake of an attack on, uh, essentially a pro-American or position in Iraq uh, that could only have come either from a Shiite militia under under Iran's dominion or from Iran itself. Uh, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, actually issued a statement in his own name condemning uh, the attack on Erbil, and then two days later, he sends the letter saying, you know, let's talk. What do you, what do you make of it? Um, well, I make of it that we're seeing, as I said the other day, that we're seeing testing from, uh, Iran via its proxies. Did I, oh, did I keep saying Iraq? I'm sorry. It's Iran. It's the Iran nuclear deal. I apologize. Iranian Shiite militias, uh, Iranian loyal Shiite militias operating in Iraq. Right. Um, they have, um, going back to early 2019 mid 2019 these were this the the groups that precipitated the series of provocations that cascaded and involved in es- create created an escalating series of crises um, because they killed american service personnel and american contractors likewise the same uh groups are responsible for this recent attack that killed an american contractor and we can 
we don't have, I don't have access to the intelligence, but I think it's a reasonable estimation to assume that this is uh, a, a, a provocation that leads back directly or indirectly to Tehran. And it was ignored deliberately. Members of the administration were pressed on this, whether they blamed Iran and danced around the issue, in part because they wanted to keep these overtures open. And now today we learn that the overtures are very explicit. They were just sort of assumed on my part. Now they're pretty explicit. They're going towards, you know, going after um, their envoys in the EU to make overtures to Iran. And then the EU would facilitate sort of a resumption of negotiations. And negotiations will resume because this is an... I've, one of the chief desires of the Biden administration, although they've put conditions on the resumption of something resembling a JCPOA that I don't believe can be met unless and until the Biden administration abandons those, um, those parameters, what their preconditions for negotiations. And I think that's inevitable because there's no way that they can resume negotiations based on what their, uh, their conditions are right now. We know that Iran is um, enriching uranium to weapons grade potential. And uh, the, the idea that they can, that they'll stop that or arrest that without some really profound concessions on the part of the West, I don't see that happening. And I don't know what those concessions could or would be at this point. Um, those, un, those unfrozen assets from 2015 are out there. They're, they've already begun rolling back sanctions. They've begun rolling back restrictions on travel for members of the Iranian regime. There's a few things around the margins you can do, but that's just really returning to a status quo that's more like 2017, 2018 in the Trump administration, not the Obama administration. I don't know how they get back there. So what's going to happen, most likely, is that you're going to have these dual tracks where you have a diplomatic track where everybody pretends everything's you know hunky-dory and we're making progress. And then you're going to have a military track where American soldiers, American contractors keep getting wounded or killed in Iraq and the Biden administration maybe responds sort of on the margins, but probably doesn't respond for fear of disrupting the diplomatic track, or maybe even they just completely dis, uh, diverge. And we have uh, a, a real series of, of retaliatory responses in Iraq against these militias. And everybody pretends in Tehran and Washington that none of this has anything to do with the diplomatic track. That's okay, totally unreasonable too. Can I just, Abe, I, yeah. I just want to note that Joe Biden came to office and said, America is back and I'm going to restore our ties with our allies, these ties that were eroded uh, over the past four years. And so he has not spoken to Bibi Netanyahu. No, ha he has. He has. He, he spoke to him two, two nights ago, but okay. it took him but, 20 But, but it, it, was, it, was, yeah. it was after it became a, a, yeah, yeah. a sort of, you know, internationally observed lag, right? Right. Right, exactly. And has reached out to Iran, our historic right. ally. Yeah. Ally. <laughs> uh, well, well I, we also have the fact that um, uh, they are signaling that they want to take a tougher posture than, uh, you know, comparably tough posture to um, China, uh, a posture comparably tough on China uh, to the uh, Trump administrations, and to be tough on Russia. Uh, and what they want is buy-in from our allies, our European allies, who are like, nothing doing. We don't want to play this game. So they are going to face a time of choosing where they're not going to get a multilateral effort against China. They're not going to get a multilateral effort against Russia. Nobody else in the world has any uh, interest in, in, in antagonizing the Chinese or in playing, you know, play, doing some kind of a hardline 
with Putin. Only we do. So guess what? They're going to have to they're going to have to make a decision about whether or not to be unilateral rather than multilateral, which is the same thing that happens with every administration, including Republican administrations. Everybody wants the cover of being able to say we're leading a grand coalition of interest against X, um, except it's usually mostly or entirely us. It's all us with cover. And right now, no one's going to provide them with the cover. So either they mean it, uh, they mean that the multilateralism is so important that they will they will back off on the notion that we need to confront China, or they're going to confront China alone. And it'll be, that's a that's an interesting and, and telling thing. But I wanted to ask Abe one, one important question about Iran, uh, which is, uh, they're also saying uh, they will not, you know, they want to go back into the Iran nuclear deal as is, if they could, uh, as long as Iran agrees to comply with its terms. And as Noah is suggesting, they're not going to comply with its terms because they're already spitting the centrifuges. The entire deal is, 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 is predicated on the notion they don't spin the centrifuges. So, um, how long before they kind of drop the they have to stop spinning the centrifuges because there's nowhere to go you can't do this you can't have it you can't Noah's saying there could be two tracks what I'm saying in the diplomatic track there's nowhere to go if you say we want to go further but we can't until you're gonna like stop stop refining uranium oh they'll they, they will they will drop it and then and then they will be met with um uh, resistance from Iran, and then they will drop whatever the next level down uh, uh, set of requirements they, they still kept in place, and so on. That This is how the deal, to the extent it was a deal, was struck during the Obama administration. Um, yeah, but there, ev- there's... Every, every demand or every suggested demand that, that Kerry went to, went to, went to, went to them with was, was, was dropped just so they could finally get this thing. Yeah, but it's not 2015 anymore. Uh, every regional player gets a bite at this apple. Tel Aviv, Jerusalem regards this as an unacceptable condition and will not allow it to come to fruition. Will we'll not neither allow does what? Wait, neither does Riyadh. They can't. Neither, they, does, neither does half a dozen other capitals in the region. But what do you mean? What do they have buy-in on? This is the United States and, and Iran. I don't understand. What, 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 can Jerusalem, what, can, what can Jerusalem do? unilateral military action. And that's actually predicated. I mean, we have recent evidence that that was the case in the end of the Obama era. Um, it wasn't Barack Obama who initiated action, for example, against the Houthis in, Ye- in Yemen um, or uh, the uh, U- UAE and Cairo uniting to execute strikes in uh, Libya. Um, this, this was stuff that happened uh, in the absence of American intervention. In fact, actively saying, please don't do this. And they were ignored. Um, we're not the sole arbiters of events in the Middle East. No, but we are the sole arbiter of events in between, uh, you know, unilateral events between us and Iran. We are the sole arbiters. And this, I guess, is the question, which is how much do they want this or how much of this is simply a kind of atavism? Like they were like, Trump pulled out, we're going to go back. Trump did this, we're going to do the other. Um, if they meet resistance from Iran on the, on the, on the, on the first term of their let's get this deal going again. How much do they bend 
further because then it's obviously it's a it's an entirely it's an entirely different deal um and no, i think what they would be fast facing in that case i mean a unilateral new, uh, military action from israel or even coalition military action from israel and its sunni partners in the region um is probably the worst case scenario the most likely scenario is a series of proliferation events um in egypt and saudi arabia both of which are actively preparing for that outcome and been intelligence public intelligence has been aware of that for a long time right well and th- this of course was the ultimate uh, uh threat of the uh, of the iran deal if you were serious about looking at the iran deal as a threat was that the uh belief that the united states was throwing in the towel on containing iran and preventing it from from working its will by having a, a nuclear weapon if you thought they were going to throw in the towel, then the then the Saudis and the Egyptians and whoever else were going to go and try to make themselves a nuclear bomb to create some form of deterrence against Iran. That was, just to make it clear to people who may have forgotten, it wasn't that this was bad because we were empowering the Iranians and there could have been liberty or, you know, that we shouldn't be making deals with them because they're anti-Semites and they want to destroy Israel. All of that is true. The larger geopolitical danger of empowering Iran in this way or giving them a 10-year runway to have legally, according to international law, have a nuclear weapon was that it was going to lead to nuclear proliferation as as the Sunni states realized with every uh, fiber in their being that they better do something to make sure that Iran couldn't blackmail them. And therefore, we'd have... Saudi Arabia with a nuclear weapon and the Muslim Brotherhood, both, you know, Muslim Brotherhood sneaking up on the House of Saud um, uh, and, you know, uh, overtaking, you know, d- having a revolution in Saudi Arabia the way that there was a revolution in Iran in 1979. And suddenly you have, you know, Osama bin Laden's progeny with a nuke. Right. So that's that's I think that's the ultimate uh, threat that we face. Uh, and I just, I, I, I don't know where this is going to go. It just, it seems to me like a recipe for failure, uh, because I don't see how they break through the, the, the situation is worse. They're starting to, they're starting to manufacture uranium at a low grade again, and which can be upgraded to weaponized, uh, quality faster and faster and faster as the centrifuges get better and better and better over time. And they're going to, like, make a worse deal than 2015? Because how, how did they make a better deal? They can only make a worse deal. I mean, they'll list the sanction. They'll do this. They'll do that. That's already worse. But it's not worse from the standpoint of how do we prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon? There is no way to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. There are two ways to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. The first is military action to degrade and destroy the facilities that can do that, which is a huge operation. These things are hardened and underground, and it would it would be a big deal and, and result in regional, in fact, global retaliation. The second is regime change. Well, there's That's a third. The only, there's well, a the, third. The, Regime change facilitates the conditions that would that that is the only thing we know in history that results right. in a state voluntarily giving up its nuclear deterrent, which is the decimation of the threat environment. The regional threat environment changes. That's what happened in, in South America. That's what happened in South Africa. Right. Those are the only examples that we have of voluntary. We have another one, and, and the former Soviet Union. We have Those another are the only one. Examples that we have a voluntary disarmament. We have another one. 
And that wasn't regime change in the place where the, where it happened. That was Libya after Iraq. After we went into Iraq, we changed the regime. We changed the regime in Iraq. And Gaddafi said, I'm giving up my nuclear program. That's that's an interesting counterexample because that's a threat environment that's worse, not better. Right. Yes. <laughs> anyway, it's just the but I mean there is a third there's a third <clears throat> thing, which is what, what has been going on for twenty years, right? Which is sabotage. Um and and uh, you know, that is uh, once more as 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 we've revealed in uh, you know in, in the pages of commentary, you know, the 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 great uh, Josh Moravchik's piece, the great Israeli contribution to world to world peace and world security over the last 20 years has been preventing Iran from getting a nuclear weapon through its actual explicit program of sabotage. And we know it's them because nobody, because it ain't us. I mean, if it's us, even if we're facilitating it, they're the ones who are taking the risks and making the, and making the decisions and putting the worms in the computer system and killing the nuclear scientists and doing whatever can be done to reduce the brain power and the capacity for them to, develop the science that makes all of this possible so that ultimately the most successful possibility before um everybody who's invested in in ensuring that iran doesn't break out is regime change and this administration is allergic to that the last administration was allergic to that but at least they were putting a lot of pressure from beneath in the form of sanctions to incentivize people to get into the streets and go after the, the regime. And that pressure is being lifted. So they don't seem to have another plan. They're just sort of stumbling towards a breakout. Right. Well, again, a creative foreign policy isn't let's go back and, and, and do everything that we did, um, you know, six years ago. Like that's a, that in, in itself is a kind of expression of bank of, of bankruptcy. Like that, that's where you have to go. I mean, uh, Trump did a terrible thing. He lifted the Iran deal. So we're going to go back into the Iran deal. It's been four years since we abrogated the Iran deal. Like the, the facts on the ground are entirely different, you know, including the Abraham Accords, which changed all of the calculations about regional security with explicit cooperation between Israel and its, and its Sunni Arab neighbors and what that might portend. So there's there's a there's a kind of refusal to deal with the world as it is that is interesting because it's not even to their own glory or their own or their own you know the idea is like we're in charge now let's do something creative and different it's like we're in charge now but you know we've got this old broken president who you know who who was reliving the glory days of his time as vice president now we're just going to do everything that the guy who wouldn't even let him into the uh, into the private residence at the White House to look around for eight years, he's now got to restore all the glory of the Obama administration, which, of course, wasn't glory at all. There was no glory to it at all. Um, anybody got anything fun planned for the weekend? No? No fun? Not me. Hoping the ice melts here in D.C. But <laughs> yeah. No, are you shoveling? Or have you shoveled? I've shoveled. The shoveling is over. Um, yeah, because we got That's we it. got more snow and we got more snow in Manhattan right now. I mean, it doesn't look like it's much, but uh, oh yeah, it's yeah. snowing here too. It's yeah. just gray and yeah, bleak. And my house has at week fifty of the pandemic, after the fourth plowable snow of the season, yeah. it's starting to feel like the Apollo capsule in here. <laughs> oh boy. 
Oh boy! Well, I'm oh, wait, but there's good news. Wait, the the Mars, the Mars, uh, the Mars rover, the landing that we have yeah. to celebrate. That was yes. amazing. So yeah, that that is yay. is amazing. Space. <laughs> it is amazing. Two years. It took two, two years, years to get yeah. there. Yeah. It's going to dig. It's going it to launch last July. It's a six month journey. Yeah, no, two years. It'll be there for collecting samples. Oh, I'm sorry. It'll be there two years. Yeah. Took six years months and then come back. It's collect yeah, it's collecting samples. It's brought it's it's broadcasting in real time. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, can, you know, it's you it's, can go it's, and see on NASA's yeah. site. It's really cool. It's 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 kind of beyond it's concurrent with a a United Arab mission, uh, UAE mostly, but a United Arab mission that that has a probe on the ground in China, both of which um, all landed. Autonomous probes on the on the surface, and now people are like, oh, we we could learn a lot if all these nations just coordinated. You know, they just coordinated their efforts and spoke to each other. We could learn about the biological past of of uh, the Martian um, Martian history, and I just don't think that's really all that necessary. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, I think we could we can be in healthy competition no healthy competition is going to advance the science is going to advance our our knowledge exactly i mean yeah yeah, that's a very very important thing here like you know uh if if this is the classic thing about you know uh, the the construction of the railroads or things like that things that actually advance not only human knowledge but human possibility and and human reach and all of that is that um there were a lot of people trying to get themselves involved and 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 be part of it, and so you learned a little from this experience. You learned a little from that. You learned a little from the other experience. They were rivals, not they were rivals, not allies. And yet, in the end, they all learned from each other because that's what happens when you when you advance the frontiers of of human knowledge. Uh, so that's a that's a that's a great thing, and it is a great thing. And you know what else is a great thing? The episode of WandaVision that just dropped this morning. I watched it at 6.30 in the morning with my kids. It's amazing. If you're not watching WandaVision, this is one of the most inventive television shows ever made. It's on Disney+. Plus. Um, this is a mind-blowing episode. It's funny. It's interesting. It takes it... Each episode takes it in an entirely new direction. Uh, you know, and I like it, and I, I used to hate superhero stuff, and uh, it isn't really a superhero thing anyway. It's something else, but uh, but it really is uh, great. So if you're if you're not watching it, you should watch it. And if you are watching it, you got a treat in store. We'll talk to you on Monday for Abe, Noah, and Christine. It's uh, this is John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>